Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season 2. My name is Birgit tremmel Werner. And I'm Martin Diesenberry. In this season we are discussing wealth and the writing of history. The topic of wealth can be approached in many ways, in terms of economic inequalities or natural resources or the relationship between labor and wealth production. Today we are joined by Regina Grafe, Professor and Chair in Early Modern History at the European University Institute in Florence. And some of the sounds of Florence are with us today as we are recording this podcast. Regina, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. You have been working a lot on the economic history of Spain and the Spanish colonial empire. And one thing that comes into mind when we think about early modern Spain and the creation of wealth is the extraction of silver from the Spanish-American colonies and what that meant for early modern wealth and growth in Spain. Can you say a bit more about this? Well, this is, of course, uh, the topic that comes to everybody's mind uh, first and foremost when we think about the Spanish Empire, mountains of silver being extracted from the Americas to Europe, to Spain, and going from there to Asia in a global trade. Um, it has always been thus. It uh, was the topic of the fantasies of pirates in the Caribbean and, uh, and various other you know, of, of literati uh, and other people. The interesting thing is that when we think about the real consequences of silver production and silver extraction from the Americas, it is obviously a much more complicated picture. It's a picture that has a set of uh, consequences at the local level, in the local economies that develop around it. It has uh, consequences at the imperial level between uh, Latin America and Iberia, and it has a set of different consequences at a global level, the integration between, for example, Europe and Asia. So could you say then that the Spanish Empire was an extractive empire? No. I don't think that's uh, the right way to look at it, because in many ways the extraction of silver from the Americas to the what some people think about as a metropolis in Iberia is maybe the least important aspect of this very large mining sector. And what would be the more important aspects? One is that the production of silver obviously created big pools of economic concentration in the areas where it took place. So this would be today's Bolivia and today's Mexico where the economic structure was dramatically changed uh, because labor had to be brought to these sites, because uh, foodstuffs had to be brought into places in 4,000 meter height, uh, because the silver had to be taken out of these places. So to start with, it is impossible to think about uh, the economy of these countries in particular the Andean countries, but also Mexico, with, without silver mining today. Um, the other thing that is, of course, important is how this lubricated global trade. Um, there was a large demand for silver in Asia, uh, and that obviously meant that Europeans for the first time had a product that Asians were genuinely interested in, and therefore it played a very large role in that context too. Last but not least, the fantasy of silver, of course, also played a role in the relationships between uh, various European powers of the time. 
But what then did silver actually mean for Spain itself? For Spain itself, the balance is interestingly um, not very clear, but probably also not very important. There's recent work, not by myself, but by other people um, who have tried to estimate the importance of the colonial economy for the European metropolis, and the country where it had the least impact is supposed to be Spain. Now, that is not how people would imagine this. Uh, in part, of course, this is because the silver that did arrive in Spain, let's not forget a lot of it stayed in Latin America or went directly from Mexico to Asia. Um, but the silver that did arrive often went to other places in Europe. So the old story that the impact was mostly through uh, a monetary effect, so the prices rose because out of silver was also the currency, um, out of the sudden all prices rose, there's certainly a certain element of that, but it doesn't seem to be quite as important as we once uh, thought. That doesn't, of course, uh, exclude the fact that a few people got phenomenally rich. So staying with early modern Spain, um, in addition to this, as you just shown, wrong narrative about silver and the meaning of silver for Spain, what else are you as a revisionist historian of Spain are disagreeing with? Well, I think we're not just I, but... Uh, maybe my generation of historians have started to revisit is the notion that this is, that the Spanish Empire is the uh, best example for extractive early modern uh, imperial constructions, for over-centralization, for a center of an empire that is extremely uh, powerful but a bit useless. Uh, at the same time, uh, that is uh, extracting wealth not only from the colonies but also from certain sectors in the in the metropolis itself, uh, and also from other parts of the European Empire. We should not forget that Spain, of course, has an empire in Europe. So, uh, if you think about the history of uh, southern Italy, we are in Italy. Uh, that is often also explained by the so-called Spanish heritage. Uh, so this whole narrative, I think, needs revising, and it is being revised by uh, many people, including myself, um, to include uh, a better understanding of the relationship between the various parts of this empire. So you mentioned uh, your generation of historians. If we were to imagine not that we were sitting in Florence in the second decade of the 21st century, but rather 90 or 100 years ago in North America, uh, what would have a historian in, in that setting have written about the Spanish Empire and why? Well, of course, as historians, we tend to rewrite history in almost uh, every generation. And one very influential set of studies uh, came out of, in particular, the US in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even into the 50s. And this um, set of historians, or these historians, uh, were in many ways very influenced by what they lived at the time, and that was the neo-corporatism of the Francoist dictatorship, which, uh, with, with uh, good judgment, they were critical of, but they 
um, I would argue often, Beck extrapolated onto the Spanish Empire. There was a notion that nothing had ever changed and that neocorporatism in the 20th century, fascist neocorporatism, was in a way only uh, a slightly modern version of uh, the fallacies of Spanish uh, economic policies through the ages. Can you say a little bit, what do you mean by neocorporatism here? The notion that uh, free markets were stifled by uh, special interest groups, uh, by uh, professional bodies that had monopolies in certain parts of the economies, by limiting the access of some people to certain professions, by trade restrictions, uh, and such like, that is interventionism, right? This was clearly a, uh, an attack uh, on interventionism in the economy of the corporatist type, um, and of course a defense of a notion of the virtues of free trade, free economy, uh, competition, etc in which often the British Empire is taken to be the sort of normative model that empire should be free trade, non-state interventionists, decentralised politically and so on, and that Spain stands at the opposite extreme of this. Exactly, exactly. One of the other uh, issues that one has to grapple with as a historian of the Hispanic world is that comparison where you have the virtues in inverted commas, uh, Northern Europeans, in particular uh, the British, uh, who are creating uh, more competitive, more open, less restrictive empires and then world economies versus the version uh, of uh, the Iberian uh, expansion and by extension then also much of Latin America that is interventionist centralizing, doesn't leave room for private uh, initiative. Uh, and you just don't buy that characterization of the Spanish Empire? I don't. Um, and I don't because I think what we understand now is that to start with, it is what many of us now call uh, a polycentric structure. In other words, it is a structure where uh, local elites in many of the important colonial sites, think about Mexico City or think about Lima or, um, or think about Havana, uh, have enormous say in what happens at the local level um, and therefore uh, also influence very, very strongly the kinds of economic activities and the kinds of regulation of economic activity that takes place. So the argument is this is not a place where someone in Madrid dreams of a regulation uh, and then everybody from Cardiff via Havana to, to uh, Mexico and Buenos Aires has to do things in that way, but rather this is a place where there are regional centers um, that have a lot of say. This local elite in a polycentric empire is also something that you deal with in a recent article uh, called Empire of Charity, mm -hmm. 2018 article in the New Global Studies. What did charity in the early modern world actually look like? Uh, that is a very complicated uh, question. 
charity, of course, was many things and different things to different people. To the recipients of charity, it was uh, often a lifeline. To the elite actors that participated in it, it was a device of political legitimization um, of what at the time would have been called good governance. But just for our listeners, could you give a concrete example about the institutions behind early modern charity in, the, in global... So the, in, the, in the Latin American and in the Iberian context, obviously religious institutions are absolutely fundamental. Uh, let's remember that in those places, uh, Christian-dominated places that did not experience reformation, the provision of charity remains fundamentally in the hands of the church. Urban institutions are also involved, but there is a sort of uh, cooperation between urban, sometimes professional, but very importantly, religious institutions. So we are talking convents, uh, we are talking uh, orphanages that are run by orders, we are talking even the Inquisition. And then you argue in this article that charity is kind of a legitimizing strategy for imperial rule. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Well. I think, I think one of the things we have learned, uh, and this goes back to the question of decentralization of an empire, that to the extent that there is much more political power, and of course also economic and social power, at the regional and local level in the colonies, these elites have a larger need to justify themselves, to justify their control over society. And charity plays traditionally an enormous uh, role. This would be true for medieval European towns or early modern European towns, and this is no different in a colonial context. So being seen to look after the weak, uh, obviously in a very visible way, um, is a, a, an act of political legitimization just as uh, running the Bill Gates Foundation or financing the Bill Gates Foundation is an act of political legitimization. This is very interesting because it implies it's connected to the extraction of wealth question, right? Because it implies that uh, this is another reason in which it's wrong to think about the Spanish Empire purely as a wealth extraction empire because if it had been that society in the colonies would have collapsed and that therefore charity is absolutely crucial bulwark to uh, colonial control uh, and similarly you can't take out too much wealth because that would undermine colonial control is that correct yes i think this is correct and and of course the maybe one has to clarify also that the issue of extraction is always extraction to where right the traditional model was extraction is from the colonies to the center. We have seen, and I think we have shown relatively clearly, that that was not the real issue. But of course, it does not mean that local elites were not extracting wealth from the weaker in society. Uh, it means that there is extraction, but the extraction is much more locally based or regionally based, uh, if you want, within the colonies as opposed to between the colonies and the supposed centre. And there, clearly legitimising that sort of extraction uh, works at least in one way through making sure that there's a, lim uh, there's a certain amount of welfare provision, as we would call it today, 
uh, in this context. But if I may add, there's one more thing that we should not entirely push to one side. Um, the combination of religious motives with political motives and economic motives is what, in my view, makes a particular form of charity in the Spanish Empire so powerful. Um, I can give an example, which would be uh, that the religious institutions both provided direct charity, so for example, for orphans or uh, uh, the infirm, that would be financed via donations originally received. Um, those donations would be invested just as today a pension fund would invest its, uh, its uh, wealth in the markets, as it were. So this would be often uh, real estate or uh, lending to the same merchants who had actually given to the religious institution. Um, and that, in turn, would also mean that the elites have access to credit because these religious institutions became credit institutions. And there the circle starts uh, to become a very virtuous one, at least from the point of view of those who were invested in, in, in many ways in these, uh, in these institutions. So you could do good for your afterlife, but also become rich in the process. That's from the perspective of those who were invested in these institutions, but just to clarify then, from the perspective of people who were working in the mines, for example, of course the Spanish Empire looks extractive. It's just it's a question of where that uh, wealth is being redistributed to. Correct. I mean, I think this is, this is where we have to be much more careful. We have to go get, go get away from uh, these very blunt arguments about... Uh, colonial or imperial extraction, and we have to look at these uh, colonial polities in much more detail and see uh, where the decisions are being made. Uh, you know, we have to follow the money, I would say, um, and we also have to see how the negotiations, uh, how the negotiations about the redistribution of resources within these imperial structures happened. That is true for the most local level. So how much do the elites, to a certain extent, have to give back in order to make sure that there is social peace, let's call it that way? When do people really rebel against this? And the Spanish Empire is obviously a place one of the things that's interesting about it is that when, when there are rebellions, they're most of the time directed at the local elite. They're not anti-imperial rebellions, but they're directed at the mismanagement of the local elite. And that tells you something. Um, and we also have to think about the, the uh, redistribution uh, between regions within the Americas, because one thing um, that we have found when looking at the fiscal structure of the empire is that there's an enormous amount of redistribution between regions in the Americas. They're winners and losers, and so there is extraction, but it is more complex, um, and it has more complex uh, political and social and cultural consequences. Regina Graf, many thanks indeed. Thank you. Thank you.